Welcome to the Plymouth Meeting Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. Today we are going to consider the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, a parable of Jesus from Luke chapter 18, Luke 18, 9 to 14. We're taking a look at this parable because it teaches us about pride humility, and our attitude before God. Pride is a thread that, that runs through the whole Bible. Um, now, not all pride is, is bad or negative. There are proper forms of, of pride, but today we'll, we'll be considering the negative and improper forms of pride, specific to self. To be prideful is to boast, to brag about yourself, to have this abundance of, of self-regard. It's self-centered, it's egocentric, it, it feeds on competition. Pride can even feel, sound, look like, quote-unquote, worship. Like, like we, we can, in the context of ourself, we, we dress ourselves up in glory and honor. Look at me, look at me. From the Bible, pride, uh, pride it deceives us. Pride can lead us to our ruin, our downfall. It can fill up our heart so much that there is just no room for God. It produces arrogant, big-headed words. It can be a source of attacks. It attacks rightness with God. The Bible describes pride as like jewelry that we wear. Jewelry to, to make us feel pretty and, and it's special. But we, we put pride around our neck like jewelry, like a necklace. And of course, pride is not just an individual problem because you get a group of individuals together and then it becomes, you know, a society problem, a system problem. Entire kingdoms filled, dress themselves with, with pride. Now, again, not all forms of pride are improper, but the improper forms of pride can be very dangerous. Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, who just passed away, a few weeks ago, he once wrote this, Pride is the carbon monoxide of all sin. It silently and slowly kills you without you even knowing. So today, this parable, it teaches us about pride. It also teaches us a little bit about humility. True humility is the, the rejection of pride and selfishness and, and arrogance. You know, you, you, you throw that away. You keep trying to just bat that one away. Did you know that the word human and the word humble come from the same root word? The Latin word, hummus, or humus. It means soil, earth. Humility is to be grounded. So use your imagination, you know, thinking of yourself going low, laying down in the dirt, ashes to ashes, earth to earth, that kind of thinking. Hey, hum- and, 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 you know, others, though, before you start to beat yourself up, Others say this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Some of you perhaps have read Rick Warren's book, Purpose, or excuse me, yeah, Purpose Driven Life. Anybody check that one out before by Rick Warren? That book, which sounds like it could be potentially filled with like prideful sentiment, you know, the purpose driven life or you know, is, is this prosperity gospel? Like, what, what is Rick Warren up to? But this is how Rick Warren begins that book with a four-word sentence. Rick Warren begins that book, it's not about you. Godly humility takes the focus off of you 
It's not about your power, your merit, your abilities, your righteousness, but it's about what God can do for you, what God can do to you, what God can do through you. It's all about God. In our faith tradition, we do have a caveat with that. We believe that God will not force himself on you. In other words, we we have some free will. It's almost like a, a chess game, except in this analogy, God isn't our opponent. But it's like we have moves, God has counter moves. We have free will. God will not force himself on us. Sometimes it may feel like he's twisting our arms and he's really trying to get our attention. But our God, the God of the Bible, the God that Jesus knows, is a God of wealth. Of, uh, of, of kindness, a wealth of forbearance, a wealth of patience. In fact, it is kindness. It is his kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. And repentance, of course, is, is not feeling really, really bad about yourself, although sometimes that happens, that comes with it. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart and mind that leads to a change of behavior. And so today... As we, as we get into this parable today, I invite you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's listen to the Spirit and discern. Let's wait upon God here. Let's ask the Spirit. Let's discern. Hey, God, what needs to turn today? What needs to turn over today in my head and heart, my attitude, my posture? And perhaps if you already know this parable, if you know what's coming up, do you, do you already have a hunch what God is going to say to you today? So we're going to pray, then we're going to do some, some background, and we'll get to our parable. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, I just ask, God, that you just descend upon us, Lord. Make yourself known, reveal to us uh, your, your word, the depth of your, your love. Give us your knowledge, your counsel, your spirit of, of might, Lord, the fear of the Lord, may it just all rest upon us today. God, may this sermon be for life change. Not to just be all sugared up and feel good, but, but God, get in there. Do your work. May, these, may this sermon be for transformation today. That does not come from us, that comes from you. You do the work. You are the agent of change inside of us, and may we all ask for that today. Crack us open. Take a look at the, the pieces inside of us. And thank you for being a God of redemption, a God who, who mends hearts, Lord. Thank you so much. Be with us today as we listen in. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in Luke chapter 18, but let's take a couple steps back. Let's get a running head start. We're going to go back to Luke chapter 17. Um, what you'll see there in Luke chapter 17 is a story, a healing story. Jesus heals 10 men with serious skin diseases, perhaps leprosy. Only one of them comes back to Jesus. He's actually a, a, a Samaritan. But Jesus says, hey, thank you for coming back. Like, your faith has made you well. And then next in Luke chapter 17, as, as Luke is putting together this gospel account, Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask Jesus about the kingdom of God. And they ask, how can we see the kingdom of God? 
Now, a common assumption in this time period was that God's day will be filled with cosmic signs. All right. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, don't hunt it down. You know, don't be obsessed with the future. Hey, the kingdom of God is here. And even going back to Luke chapter 12, if only you could read the signs and the times correctly, the king is right before you. The king and the king's project is unfolding before you. And then Jesus goes on to give some some thick and perhaps uh, confusing language uh, that, that sounds like a prophetic warning. Hey, the son of man, that's Jesus, he will come back someday. Now, one of my views around prophetic language in the Bible is to read it as a warning. That's one of the ways to read it, in addition to other ways. But, like, prophetic language, it's a warning. It's a tool that, that drives us to Jesus. It's a tool that, that, that drives us to loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. And so Jesus has some prophetic language there in Luke chapter 17. And then after this prophetic language... Jesus encourages his disciples to pray, to be persistent in prayer. Don't give up, disciples. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Take courage, disciples. And the way that he encourages the disciples is that he teaches this parable uh, of the persistent widow. Some of your translations might call her the nagging widow. But here's the deal. Uh, She has faced some injustice, and she keeps going to a judge, and she persistently is asking the judge for justice. Justice needs to be, like, it it needs to happen, and she is persistent about this. The summary of the parable is that God will defend and work justice for his people, for his chosen people. Now, in context, Jesus just talked about the Son of Man coming back. Hey, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find people with that type of persistent faith, that type of persistent attitude? Will the Son of Man find His church filled with people who are just prayerfully crying out that God will bring vindication, that God will bring wholeness and shalom, that God will make things right and just? Will the Son of Man find His disciples persistently praying like that? Or will He find them sleeping? Will he find his disciples just blissfully unaware in their own little selfish bubble that they created. And so that's the background. That's the flow. Luke is driving somewhere. And now uh, we ask, okay, what prevents or hinders us from having a persistent faith? It's people who get complacent and pleased in their moral performance. Because that's That's where we go next. Jesus goes on to give another parable. It's on prayer, but it has a different twist here. This one is about posture. It's about attitude. And so perhaps this is a way that Jesus is kind of answering this this question that's coming up out of the text. Hey, when Jesus returns, like, who will he stick up for? Who will Jesus vindicate? And I'll give you a, a heads up. It will be people who are confident in his mercy. People who are confident in his mercy and not their own merit. And so that is the background. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. We are given a reason why Jesus taught the parable. It's because there are people in his audience who were confident in their own righteousness, 
and they were looking down on others. There are people in Jesus' audience who thought they were morally upright, that they just got all their virtues nailed down. They're walking around nice and proud. Because of that, they think they are just automatically acceptable to God. But really, this is a a misdirected sense of self-confidence. And also, out of that attitude, they look down on others with disgust. And sometimes, slash often, you know, that, that posture, it affects how we communicate. And we, we sometimes try to um, make our pride and looking down on others, we, we try to sweeten it up. And so we, we start to, it, it sounds kind coming out, but really, you know, we're, we're just speaking down to others. It's, it's a condescending tone. Or sometimes we don't try to hide it at all. It just comes out as rude. It comes out as unkind. And this parable, it, it takes place at the temple in Jerusalem. The temple is the center of the Jewish world. It's, it's the center of worship, so to speak. You know, like, this is it. This is, the, this is a good place. This is like the center of the world, the center of the map. Now, I'm not a golfer, but I'm going to take a risk here. If this parable was about golf, this parable would take place at, like, the best golf course in the United States. I did an internet search, and they said Pine Valley in New Jersey. Does that make sense to anybody? Is that fair? I see a couple of heads. All right, internet, way to go. Yeah. So, like, this is taking place at Pine Valley in New Jersey. To be honest, I didn't know what that was until, like, a couple of days ago when I looked this up. I'm not a golfer. Like, not me. <laughs> the best golf course in the world. The temple. The temple. The Jerusalem temple. That's where we're at. So, okay. We're at the temple, and the two men are introduced. And they're known to be polar opposites. You have a Pharisee. That's a member of a strict religious group. They pride themselves, uh, whether you want to define that in a negative sense or a positive sense. But there's a sense of pride. They pride themselves in their their holiness. Then you also have a, a tax collector. And there is a culture of disdain around tax collectors. And here's why. They worked for Rome. They're Roman overlords. You know? They were viewed as traitors, something like that. Tax collectors, they usually abused the system. And I think the way it works, I'll need to look into this, but I think the way it works is like tax collectors actually don't get paid. It's just assumed that they'll, they'll take <laughs> from each one of you. You know, They're crooks. They end up being crooks. They, they take more than what they take. They overtax people. And so for many, especially the Pharisees, Lines were drawn. Tax collectors, they're treated as outsiders. They are outsiders that need to be shunned. Now, with all that being said, and before we continue, let us proceed with caution. Because we do not know their full story. So I encourage you to just slow down. Sometimes, yeah, we, if we've been studying the Bible for a while, been listening in, we, like, we have some thoughts about Pharisees. Let's just, let's check that. You know, I once heard a pastor say, whenever you read a story about a Pharisee, just try to assume positive intent. Let's try to read it in the in the brightest lens possible. Like, let's just try to start there. Because often Pharisees are presented in in a negative sense. Not all Pharisees were 
were, quote-unquote, the bad guys in Scripture. But let's just proceed with caution. We don't know their full story. Let's not be hasty to make any judgments about these two. We don't know who they are. All we know is that these labels, Pharisee and tax collector, it come, you know, both groups have their own reputation, cultural baggage. But let's make space for them. Maybe they're not like what we expect. And so these two men go to the temple to pray. And so that's probably a normal look for the Pharisee. But when we see the tax man come in, perhaps we're a little jumpy. You know, like, you know, Kramer from Seinfeld. Like, woo, like, what's going on? Like, the tax man's here. Giddy up. Whoa, what's going on? You know, the, the, the tax man is there to pray as, as well. And that might cause us to be like, oh, no. Doesn't he know he's not supposed to be here? Maybe. Right? Oh, let's not judge. Let's not, let's not draw that line. So verse 11. The tax collector. Or excuse me, the, the Pharisee. That's verse 11. The Pharisee stands apart from everyone else. And so perhaps he, he's kind of like going closer to the Holy of Holies. Like, like he's moving more into the temple complex, perhaps. And he prays. And he begins his prayer with a thanksgiving. But it's not a thanksgiving focused on God, his work or attributes. The Pharisee gives this thanksgiving. He is so thankful that he's not like other people. He compares himself. It's kind of like saying, dear God, thank you, I'm the man. Thank you, I'm the best. I'm not like the robbers and the evildoers and the adulterers. I'm not like the swindlers and the crooks and the cheaters. I'm not like that tax collector over there. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like him. And so he's so like self-centered in his prayer. And he's focusing on all these sins that he's avoided. And so in his pride, he's ranking himself. He's elevating himself. It's all about status. And here's why he thinks he's better. He is a faithful tither. He is a faithful faster. He fasts twice a week. Which, by the way, only on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, there is one day in the Old Testament where there is a requirement to fast. This guy fasts twice a week. He is faithful in giving He's tithing. According to his rule book, according to his scoreboard, he is so much better. He is so much more upright. He is the man. He's the man. Look at him. This Pharisee. I think he's been drinking too much caffeine-free Diet Coke. (laughs) Let me explain that. Caffeine-free Diet Coke. It looks good in the commercials and the advertisements. It comes in a pretty can. But really it tricks you into thinking that it's refreshing. Caffeine-free Diet Coke. Do you hear that? It tricks you into thinking it's refreshing, that it's going to give you energy, that it's going to give you some nutrition. But it's caffeine-free Diet Coke. And you see, this is what pride does. Pride it's that slow fade. Pride can slowly fade you into thinking that caffeine-free Diet Coke is like the real thing. Pride convinces you that you're right, that you're the best, that you're the most valid. 
Pride, especially in our context, religious pride, it can dangerously move your heart to compare yourself to others. So we compare ourselves in order to prove ourselves. Another word for prove is justify. Comparison is this devilish lie that skips over the gospel. It skips over the grace and mercy of God. And it whispers to you that you don't need to go to the foot of the cross. You can just cut in line. You can just climb the ladder. A couple, couple rungs up, at least you're not like them. You climb, 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 you can get a little bit closer to God. Because again, look how good you are. You're the man, you're the woman. Instead of accepting Christ and being justified by grace through trusting in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ, instead of accepting and believing and standing upon Jesus and Jesus alone, pride is that little snake that says you already have the right. Pride says, look how nourished you are. Look how energized you are. Look how legit you are. However, if you accept the gospel invitation, when you hear this good news, that Jesus has taken care of your bad news, it means that you will actually see bad news. You will see how messed up and broken and tarnished and stained and, and there's just like so much going on. You will see how much, uh, how much you need, how needy you are. You will, you will see how dehydrated you are, how weak you are. You will see that your righteousness is like filthy rags. The gospel reveals that. It, it's, it brings all of that into the light. And then Jesus says, it's okay. It's okay, child. I'm for you. I'm with you. I love you. Let me take, let me take those rags. Let me, let me take your rags. Let me take your rags. Let me take them. That's the gospel. It's all about Jesus. And we can rest in his work. And then verse 13 swings over to the tax man. He's also there to pray. He stands at a distance, probably in the corner, right? He's posturing different from the Pharisee. Perhaps there's something, something that's keeping him from waltzing on in. He's burdened, maybe with guilt, shame, fear. I don't know. Again, we don't know his story. But as we view this tax man and what he's up to, you know, perhaps we're picking up a, some timidity. There, there's a sense of unworthiness, perhaps. There doesn't seem to be selfishness here, but actual, it's like the opposite. It's like humble self-awareness. And you know what? He doesn't lift his eyes up to heaven. And perhaps what that means is he's not looking towards the center of the temple. He's keeping his eyes away. And you know what he's doing? He beats his chest. I invite you to do that. A couple taps on your chest if you want. He beats his chest. Perhaps the bottom is bottoming out of his life right now. He doesn't compare himself to others, but no, rather he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. He comes to God and he knows the only way through is God's mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I missed the mark. And that's the end of the parable. So, who goes home justified with God? Justified before God. Who, who goes home justified from the temple before God? Jesus lets us know. Jesus says this. I tell you that this tax collector, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We don't know his full story, but in that moment, Jesus is endorsing the posture and attitude of the tax man. Position in the temple means nothing. Position in your heart means everything. And we need to know, we need to know, we need to know that God honors humility. And we also need to know that pride infects us all. I mentioned him earlier the late Tim Keller, in a sermon of his, he pointed me to um, a work by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago. And uh, Solzhenitsyn's book is about communism. It's about the Soviet prison system. Solzhenitsyn writes this, quote, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And if it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. Essentially, if only we could just round up all the evil people, right? That would solve our problem. But he continues. He says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And maybe you've heard that quote before. The line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And then he goes on to say, Confronted by the pit into which we are about to toss those who have done us harm, we halt. We're stricken dumb. We're, we're dumbfounded. It is after all, it is after all only because of, of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and we weren't. We need to understand that pride and comparison and idolatry, it's in every one of us. It's in every nation, culture, society. Again, in fact, it is in every human heart. Pride is a germ that is in every human heart. And it can grow to be this weed that chokes out following Jesus. It gets in the way of our worship. It can choke out others from being able to find Jesus. It can misrepresent Jesus. And so pride from society's point of view, this is what pride does. Pride says they are the problem. Pride from society's point of view says it's their idols that we need to destroy. You know? Pride is this sorting mechanism that says, okay, you're good, you're good, you're bad, you're bad. Pride says, look at me, look at me. I'm the best, you're the worst. 
Again, pride says, they're the problem. That's the problem. Whereas, you know what the humble Christian says? A humble Christian says, I'm the problem. Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. My heart is sinful. Christ, have mercy. My heart is sinful. Christ, have mercy. I'm the problem. Christ, have mercy. The line of good and evil, it cuts through every heart. It cuts through my heart. Christ, have mercy. We're all part of the problem. Dear church, (laughs) there's a solution. And the solution comes with this invitation into repentance. The invitation is, turn. Rend your heart, not your garments. Turn to Jesus. Turn to his mercy. Turn to his grace. Call upon the Lord and believe that Jesus is the final solution to God's pursuit of broken humanity. Author Josh White says something like this, like to paraphrase, like sin makes us so glitchy. Some days we're like the Pharisee. Some days we're like the tax man. Some days we're like the victimizer. Other days we're like the victim. But it is in Christ we find freedom and victory that we do not deserve from a God who loves us in our sin. And so we lay down our pride. Lay your efforts to prove yourself down. Lay it down. Ladder theology, throw it away. The ladder that you want to climb, let Jesus smash it. Jesus says, you do the humbling, I'll do the exalting. Jesus says, child, I'll lift you up on my shoulders. You're worried about other people? You don't need to be. What's it to you? Follow Jesus. He's our center. He's the king. And his kingdom is breaking in today. Repent and believe the good news. And what does that look like in practice, like in community right now? I'll close with a quote from John Wesley. He says, if thine heart is as my heart. If thou lovest God and lovest all mankind, I ask no more. Give me thine hand. If your heart is as my heart, then take my hand. We might disagree with a lot of stuff, but we're moving towards Jesus together. Take my hand, and with childlike faith, let's share the journey together and move towards Jesus. And we'll let the words of Jesus Close it all for us tonight, or today, this morning. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted.